This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to the arts, sports, and everything in between, and your stories, too. And this one is a special one. More than a half a century after it hit theaters, Mary Poppins is still one of the most beloved films ever. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. You may have seen the 2013 period drama Saving Mr. Banks, starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks as filmmaker Walt Disney, who attempts to obtain the screen rights to P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. Whether you've seen the movie or not, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and hear from the people who were actually there. Now, let's begin with television and screen legend Dick Van Dyke. I think all would agree that Mary Poppins truly is Walt Disney's crowning glory. Like Mary Poppins herself, the film is practically perfect in every way. The perfect creative team, perfect songwriters, the perfect cast, and the perfect person to put it all together, Walt Disney. But getting started wasn't that easy. Here's Disney animator Andreas Dejas and P.L. Travers biographer Valerie Lawson. I remember him being interviewed for it, and he said that his daughter Diane had read the books, and she actually was the one who said, Dad, maybe there is something for you here. And he loved the books too. So it was something very personal to him from the start. P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins was published in 1934 in London, but it wasn't until about four years afterwards, in 1938, that Walt Disney went after the rights. Mrs. Travers, however, wasn't too keen. Allegedly, she said she'd seen other books that had been turned into movies, and she didn't like the way they'd been treated by Hollywood, but Walt never, ever gave up on a good idea. And in 1944, he tried again. Walt sent his brother to try and convince Pamela, who was in New York, that she would release the rights to him, but she wouldn't. Now, over the next few years, there are several offers made and as many refusals. And these, these conversations they had are all recorded. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes, and this is what I want to make very clear. The book should be read very carefully for atmosphere. It is integral to the book and to the story that Mary Poppins should never be impolite to anybody. You brought your references, I presume, may I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Is that so? Here's song composer and lyricist for Mary Poppins, Richard Sherman, and film historian Brian Sibley. No, 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 don't make it like that. There were so many hesitations in, in her acceptance of the idea that the father and mother change and become warmer and more loving. She said, not a change of heart, because he's always been sweet, but worried with the cares of life. I think she had 30 days to consider. On the 30th day, she relented but she had to be the consultant. It seems unbelievable after all that had gone on, but almost 20 years from the point when Walt Disney had set out on this quest, Mrs. Travers agrees on certain conditions that the film might be made. We were considering a number of people to play the part of Mary Poppins. We had uh, uh, Mary Martin, and we were thinking of Betty Davis, and then we were also thinking of Angela Lansbury. But. Uh, it wasn't until one evening when the Ed Sullivan show had an excerpt from Camelot and a young woman named Julie Andrews and Richard Burton sang What Do the Simple Folk Do? 
And I called my brother. I said, Bob, oh my God, she's absolutely perfect. Next day we walked into DeGrati's office and Don DeGrati says, did you see the Ed Sullivan show last night? I mean, it was just wow. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, to, we want to see Walt. Here's Tony Walton, Mary Poppins' costume and set designer, and his then-wife, Mary Poppins herself, Julie Andrews. P.L. Travers had approval, pretty much, of everything in her contract, so Walt said that Julie would need to be auditioned or passed by the author of the stories. I met her very briefly in London. She, I think, was fond of me and, and approved of my doing Poppins. Uh, I know she said that I had the nose for it. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. She was quite happy with Julie Andrews, though. She was more than happy. She loved her performance. Roomy for everyone, gather around. The constable responsible. Now, how does that sound? Walt Disney was reading in a newspaper an article about what people thought about the cinema today, and he came across a comment by Dick Van Dyke which said that he personally did not like the way in which modern-day movies were trending towards, as he put it, dirty pictures. Now, this was something that Walt himself felt very, very strongly about, and he thought, oh, this man's a man after my own heart. So he had a look at some of Dick's work, and he asked Dick to come over to the studio. They met. Instantly, they liked one another, and almost instantly, Walt was offering him the part to play Bert. Can't put me finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen. All happened before. I had only been in one movie myself, so I was about as green as anything. And uh, Julie, despite the fact it was her first film, was perfectly professional. She had a camera personality. She knew where the camera was. She knew where the lights were, as if she had done it all her life. She was thoroughly professional from the beginning. Of all the wonderful things that Walt was coming up with for this movie, one of the greatest moments in my songwriting career was we had finished this song, Jolly Holiday, and we were playing it for the first time for Walt, and Don DeGrati had developed a bunch of beautiful sketches for this thing. And there's a section in the song where four waiters were going to come out, and Walt said, hold it. And he said, waiters have always reminded me of penguins. <laughs> so they made them penguins. That would have never occurred to any human being except Walt Disney. He had this wonderful, whimsical way about him. Walt said, as a matter of fact, we'll animate everything in that sequence except for the principal characters. You know, we can do that. We have this sodium vapor process that Ub Iwerks has created. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand, your heart starts beating. It was a high point of my life when I saw that finally put together with the real animation in there. What a masterful job it was. Walt took all of his little bag of tricks that he developed over 35 years and put, put them into this picture. I did a glorious die, right as a morning in mine. I feel like And I when we come back, we'll continue the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American Stories. The grass so green or a bluer sky. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. Chim, chim, chim. 
to me, a sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chimini, good luck will rub off when he shakes hands with you. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mary Poppins. Here's Karen Dutrice, who played the young Jane Banks. I think the one thing that comes off with Disney movies of the old days, and especially Walt himself, was his love of innocence. And I think that's what Walt revered in We Children, and that's what he wanted to send us away with still. And he succeeded. Alan, we had the most glorious meeting. When we were casting the film, Walt immediately said, I know the perfect person to play the mother, and that is Glynis Johns. She's just absolutely right. And we all agreed, she's absolutely perfect. Gracious, Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. What will Mr. Banks say? He's going to be cross enough as it is to come home and find the children missing. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I said to Walt, it might give me an incentive if I could have my own little number. Walt reached over and said, but Glennis, the boys are just finishing a great number for you. You're going to love it. Wait till you hear it. So he says, all right, all right. I'll he- have to hear it. And if, 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 I, if I like it, then I might, I might consider doing the part. So she left. Walt said, Get on this thing. You've got to write something for her. But we had this song that we had written called Practically Perfect. So we said, hmm, that could be a suffragette song. By the time I got back to the Chateau Marmont, the telephone was ringing, and it was Walt. He said, listen to this. I heard the first few bars of Sister Suffragette. We're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Glynis was interested then. When I think now of how nearly I didn't do it, it's amazing because I'm so proud to be part of it. It was the only time I've ever been working on a project where at the end of each day, I walk away saying, this is so good. I knew from the very beginning, after every day shooting, how good that movie was going to be. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman. We asked Walt if we could have a half an hour of his time, and uh, we played a few song ideas we had. He was very impressed with what we were coming up with. And uh, at the end of this meeting, uh, he said, play me that, uh, that Bird Woman song again. Come feed the little birds, show them you care. It was about charity, about giving somebody something that they didn't ask for, but that they could use love. Please, may we feed the birds? Waste your money on a lot of ragamuffin birds? Certainly not. Feed the birds, toppins a bag. Walt, from the time he heard it, just loved that song. Never said it to us, but he would, like a Friday afternoon, he'd call us up and say, come over, and 5.30, 6 o'clock, we'd come over to his office, and he'd say, play it. <laughs> and I'd play Feed the Birds and sing it for him. Feed the birds, toppence a bag. And he'd, yep, that's what it's all about. 
Have a good weekend, boys. And then he'd send us home. He loved that song. It was his favorite. Here's Richard Sherman, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke. And Walt Disney gave that tuppence a bag with the lady who played the Bird Woman. Her name was Jane. Uh, Jane Darwell. And what happened was Walt said, I know the perfect person to play this part, if she'll do it. She's, she's old and frail, oh. but I want her to do it. And Walt... Was that is, the last thing she ever did? Yes, it was. And, mm. and uh, she died soon after she did it. But oh. they sent a, a special car for her. They treated her like a star. Walt came down to the soundstage oh. to, to see her. She was so yeah. thrilled and happy. She cried because she said Walt Disney was so kind to her. That was giving that... Tuppence. Tuppence of bag. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. The musical style was really boiled beef and carrots, boiled beef and carrots, an old English uh, folk song. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And, and any old iron, any old iron. It's uh, silly little songs that they wrote in those years, and uh, we wanted to feel like that, and yet be original and, and totally our own. When the film was released, audience response was overwhelming, and it became an instant phenomenon. It was the biggest hit in the history of the studio. Mary Poppins had worked her magic on the world. Mary Poppins premiered on August 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Cinema on Hollywood Boulevard. They tell me this could be one of your biggest pictures, Mr. Disney. Well, we... Retired yet. I'm so nervous I'm about to die. It's such an exciting night. This is the night of all. The red carpet, big we had the big tent out. Yeah, right. yeah. And we had a big garden party built out on the, on on the, the back, yes. The back. And the reaction was wonderful. <laughs> what an ovation I got at the end. The reviews were fantastic. I never read reviews like that. They were all glowing, th thrilling reviews. It was a remarkable success, a very, very big popular success, which I mean, that, that is the greatest thing I think anybody could have, seeing people enjoying and laughing and crying to your work. It's just the one, most wonderful thing in the world. For the best actress in a musical or comedy, the nominees are... At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh brought it up, but we suddenly realized that if, if Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins. The winner is Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very very happy time and I took an enormous gulp and said finally my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place mr. Jack Warner everybody screamed it was like a thunderous scream and everyone's laughing including mr. Warner so I was home and safe and that was her little sweet revenge I think. it was great congratulations thank you very much when a few weeks later, the Academy Award nominations were announced, Mary Poppins received an amazing 13 nominations. Among the nominations include Best Picture, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, Visual Effects, Original Song, and Score. There probably aren't words to describe your emotion. Now, 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 gentlemen, please. 
On the contrary, there's a very good word. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> the magic of it had escaped me, pounding it out every day. When it was all put together, there was. It, there was something else besides what we put into it. I don't know what serendipity came along, but there was a wonderful magic aura about that movie that nobody expected. And it's just as I say, every time I see the film, I think it's better and better. And now each generation is going to enjoy it in a different way. Papa Kite needs a proper tale, don't you think? It was such a contribution to family entertainment and I, I know that it's going to be around for a, for a long time. It, it stands as the perfect Walt Disney movie, as far as I'm concerned. I had the pleasure, the honor, really, of, of being asked to, to uh, help dedicate the Walt Disney statue at Disneyland. It was his 100th birthday, and so I was, they have to do that, and they said, would you play a couple of songs? And I said, okay. And I played a couple of things, and then I said, I'm now going to play Walt Disney's favorite song, and it's just for him. And I sang and played Feed the Birds, Tuppence the Bag. I finished my song, and I blew a kiss to Walt, statue like that. I said, happy birthday, Walt, and I got down. And they told me afterwards, just toward the end, out of the clear blue sky, one bird flew down right over where I was playing and off again into the clouds. Well, that moves me very much. That was Walt saying thanks. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter. Just give us your email address and we'll give you five of our best stories each week, every week. And thanks to the folks at MyPillow.com for providing sponsorship and support to this show. And go to MyPillow.com and get their pillows. My wife and I use them, and my goodness, sleep's been better ever since. Just go to MyPillow.com and type in stories. Give it a shot. I promise you, you'll sleep better. It's helped me. It's helped my bride. And my goodness, as we go out, we'll be listening to the great Julie Andrews singing... The story of Mary Poppins. Here are now American stories. Toppins, toppins, is our American stories and now we take a look back to the American Revolution and to an author whose anonymous publication became the voice of the rebellion the author Thomas Paine the publication common sense take it away Jesse Thomas Paine wrote the book on American independence helping to set the stage for the American Revolution as one of our founding fathers, this English-born political activist, philosopher, and badass revolutionary was known as a corset maker by trade, a journalist by profession, and propagandist by inclination. Payne migrated to the British American colonies in 1774 with the help of Benjamin Franklin. 
Virtually every rebel read or listened to a reading of his pamphlet called Common Sense, which argued for independence from British rule. Here's Thomas Paine with the introduction to Common Sense as anonymous. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances have and will arise which are not local but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected, and in the event of which their affections are interested. The laying a country desolate with fire and sword, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind, and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth, is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling, of which class, regardless of party censure, is the author. Who the author of this production is, is wholly unnecessary to the public, as the object for attention is the doctrine itself, not the man. Yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party, and under no sort of influence, public or private, but the influence of reason and principle. Throughout the 1760s and 70s, people were getting tired of British taxation and rule. Protests were falling on deaf ears, which led to the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and a boycott on British goods. Yet after all that drama, a lot of colonialists still had allegiances and nostalgic warm fuzzy feelings for the motherland. That became more of an unpopular position when British Parliament banned all trade with the colonies in December of 1775. But still, loyalists remained, and Thomas Paine was calling them out. The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France, with this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of Parliament. For the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle, not more just. Wherefore, Laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people, and not to the constitution of the government, that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary. For as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice. And as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife, so any prepossession in favor of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one. Thomas Paine had sold nearly 120,000 copies of Common Sense from the time it was published in January to four months later in April of 1776. The argument for independence had reached a tipping point. Thomas Paine would provide the extra push. But what exactly was the main argument of this publication? Professor of History and American Studies at Yale, Joanne Freeman, has the answer. The main argument of the pamphlet did three things. 
So number one, it, it basically refuted the prevailing ideas against independence. It went one step further and demonstrated the necessity of independence and how possible it was. And it demonstrated the stupidity and utter uselessness, not only of the English monarchy, but just of monarchies generally. In fact, Thomas Paine hated monarchies so much that we're still talking about his rants and raves against them to this day. In the early ages of the world, according to the scripture chronology, there were no kings, the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark, for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Back in the day, in 1776, those were fighting words. Here again is Yale professor Joanne Freeman with some context on what Thomas Paine's common sense accomplished at the time. First, the crown was the last remaining emotional and political link that was really tying the colonies to the mother country. By this point, the colonists had lost faith in Parliament. So Paine certainly knew that if he could strike at this last linchpin of colonial sentiment, he could advance the cause of independence. Second, if Paine could destroy the legitimacy, not only of King George, but also of the idea of monarchy overall, then the English Constitution's legitimacy would suffer as well, once again, hopefully, opening the way for independence. And then third, I think equally important, rhetorically, Paine had a really good writer's sense of pacing, and he knew that if he opened this pamphlet with this really dramatic challenge to all of the prevailing assumptions about government, and if he turned all of these assumptions on their head, he would pull readers in to his pamphlet and into his argument immediately and hold them there for the center of his argument, which was the second section of the pamphlet, and that is really the part that focuses on independence. Independence at this point was a topic that people didn't discuss openly. They didn't talk about it in public. If discussed at all, it was discussed privately, among friends, because basically it amounted to treason. Paine's dramatic introduction opened the way for him to introduce this really controversial topic. If the English Constitution lacked legitimacy, well, what next? And his answer obviously is, well, independence, the obvious solution. Which then brings us to the third section of the pamphlet, and that is the future. Paine concludes the pamphlet by discussing just what Americans could institute to replace the English Constitution, like what kind of government they might be able to construct to replace what they were stripping away. They were stripping away the tyranny of British rule, word by word. Thomas Paine was the voice of the rebellion. 
arms, as the last resource, decide this contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. When we return, more from Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and the American Revolution. This is Our American Story. And we return to the story of the American Revolution and Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Thomas Paine's Common Sense was published in January of 1776 and a bestseller by April. It had turned colonial nostalgia for Britain into a demand for independence. But Common Sense wasn't only a radical condemnation of the status quo, but the very definition of the American spirit. Here again, Thomas Paine. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed-time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fractured now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. While Paine was able to paint vivid pictures with his words, he was also very direct on how the country should move forward. Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. Thomas Paine made a strong argument against men of passive tempers who wanted reconciliation with Britain. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, and still hoping for the best, are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind, bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then are you only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, 
and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then are you not a judge of those who have. But if you have, and still can shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy of the name of husband, father, friend, or lover. And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. Here again for a recap on the influence that this work by Thomas Paine had on colonial Americans is Yale professor Joanne Friedman. The power of the pamphlet wasn't just in its argument or in specific points of argument, but rather it was in the way that it reversed prevailing assumptions. Paine forced readers to consider a whole new way of looking at the impending crisis and actually at the entire imperial system. He laid bare assumptions that had led colonists to resist independence, and then by exposing these biases and holding them up to scorn, he forced people to think beyond what they had thought before. Thomas Paine was challenging the way things had always been regarding the survival of liberty. Professor Friedman describes the mindset of those who remained in support of the old way of doing things in contrast to what Paine was writing in Common Sense. So basically the old paradigm had been Liberty can survive among brutal and self-interested men only through a balance of institutionalized forces so no one can monopolize the power of the state and rule without opposition. So monarchy, nobility, and the people have an equal right to share in the struggle for power. Complexity in government in this sense is a good thing. Simplicity allows for monopolization. Well, Paine argues complexity is not a virtue in government. It simply makes it impossible to tell who is at fault. Paine charged that the complexity of the British government was designed to serve the monarchy and the nobility, that the king did nothing but wage war and hand out gifts to his followers, and that this entire idea of British constitutional institutional balance was a fraud. O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. Youth is the seed-time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the Union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. 
the intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and the friendship which is formed in misfortune, are, of all others, the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. But our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, that is, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First they had a king, and then a form of government, whereas the articles or charter of government should be formed first, and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the errors of other nations let us learn wisdom, and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end. In Part 4 of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, he specifically calls for a Declaration of Independence, a declaration that would come to fruition just months after this pamphlet was first published. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence. Some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on forever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects, we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, 
but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. Thomas Paine became the voice of American independence when he published Common Sense. He turned men and women who were sympathetic to the status quo into rebellious, freedom-fighting Americans so that future generations could enjoy this glorious bounty that we call America. And this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and the next story you're about to hear is a good one. And before we get to it, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to sign up for our newsletter, and in the newsletter we'll send you our five best stories every week, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, share your email address with us, and we'll get you that newsletter. And share the link with friends if you like what you hear. In this time of never-ending bickering and loudness and anger, Our show is a rebuttal to all of that. And now it's time for the take of an obscure TV signal hacking incident that took place in the 1980s that's had the city of Chicago on edge ever since. Here's Jesse with the details. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. First hit WGN. Its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The incidents are now under investigation by the FCC and the FBI. Last night, someone broke into regular programming on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The Max Headroom signal intrusion was a television signal hijacking that happened the night of November 22, 1987 on two different television stations in Chicago within three hours of each other. The first incident took place for 25 seconds during the sportscast on the 9 p.m. news on WGN-TV Channel 9. During highlights from the Chicago Bears' 30-10 home victory over Detroit, the Pirates' signal took over. McMahon and McKinnon, 14-0 Bears, then the defense, which hadn't put up a sack in 12 quarters, finally did. The screen went black for nine seconds, then returned with a person wearing a Max Headroom mask and sunglasses. As a panel of corrugated metal rotated behind this character's gyrating head, the sound is nothing but static. The hijack was stopped after engineers at WGN switched the frequency of their studio link to the John Hancock Center transmitter. The news anchors, realizing that they're back on the air, try to explain to their audience what's happened. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, (laughs) so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. So what we're going to do is start over from the top of the Bears and tell you once again about the 30 to 10 victory they had over Detroit today out at Soldier Field. I should briefly mention what Max Headroom was. While there was no affiliation between this guy who hacked the TV broadcast in Chicago, he was wearing the Max Headroom mask. You see, Max Headroom was a 1980s fictional AI character known for his wit and electronic stuttering voice that was dreamt up by an undoubtedly coked-out television executive with a profound sense of talking heads that would dominate mainstream media for decades. 
And by Coke, I mean Coca-Cola, as Max Hedrum was at one time the spokesperson for the brand itself. This is This is what passed as cutting-edge entertainment back in the 80s before the internet, kids. Max Hedrum. So this hacker, this pirate, this communications vandal, broke into WGN-TV's signal in Chicago the night of November 22, 1987, during the 9 p.m. news, and broadcast video of himself wearing the Max Headroom mask, with nothing but static for audio, without explanation. But the fun doesn't stop there. Later that same night, around 11.15 Central Time, during a broadcast of the Doctor Who serial horror of Fang Rock, PBS member station WTTW's signal was hijacked by the same person who had broadcast the WGN hijack just hours before, this time with distorted and crackling audio. The sound is nearly impossible to make out, mostly random nonsense. But you can hear the man say, quote, I've just made a masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds, unquote. Whatever that means. Oh, I just made a giant masterpiece for all of the greatest world newspaper nerds. <laughs> then the character exposes his rear end as a woman off camera spanks him with a fly swatter. Clearly, we are dealing with a genius here. WTTW, which maintained its transmitter atop the Sears Tower, found that its engineers were unable to stop the hijacker due to the fact that there were no engineers on duty at the time. Technicians monitoring the transmission from WTTW headquarters attempted to take corrective measures, but couldn't. The Max Headroom incident made national headlines and was reported on the CBS Evening News the following day. Well, the FCC says last night's piracy was the first of its kind in Chicago. Another one is on tonight, this one for the video pirates who managed to scramble Chicago airwaves. The pirates interrupted WGN and WTTW programming with a show of their own. Video pirate who raided two television broadcasts last night first hit WGN. Its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The pirate mimicked the Max Headroom character that you see on TV. Chicago television station, someone using sophisticated equipment managed to briefly and illegally override broadcast signals on WGN-TV and WTTW. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. Jury deliberations mission tonight is trying to find out who's responsible for two acts of video piracy. Someone who really knows the business and uh, microwave in general. Last night, someone broke into regular programming here on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The FCC was upset. Take some pretty significant uh, equipment, technical equipment, and some knowledge of uh, broadcast uh, frequencies, uh, microwave frequencies, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of power. Law enforcement was furious. It is very serious, and uh, we'd like to uh, inform anybody who's involved in this type of thing that it is serious and that we will take every step uh, that uh, we can to uh, find out who is doing it. And once we have uh, determined that, we will make sure that uh, the full extent of the law is uh, carried out. Viewers were ready to riot. I got so upset that I wanted to bust a TV set. I really did. I just thought it would be just a slight mess up, but that in the middle of the tape is going to have to tape over it. Uh, somebody wants to get attention, what do they do? They go break into a uh, uh, television broadcast just to get attention, like throwing a brick through your window, so to speak. It's not too, it's not too bright, really. But this little guy was, well, he was rather amused. Very, very funny. 
And that, perhaps, is the most valid opinion on the Max Headroom signal intrusion that cold night of November 22, 1987 in Chicago. Sure, it was illegal. Sure, it probably cost time and money to investigate. And sure, it was reckless and highly immature. And whoever was responsible has yet to be brought to justice over such a blatant and crass disregard for our system of law and order. But it was kind of funny. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, looking to advance public policy that helps grow small businesses into bigger ones, helping communities, Main Street particularly, across this great country. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of a guy in Grand Rapids, Michigan, named Sid Jansma Jr., that you don't likely know, but you'll glad to have met him. Today in the United States, about 85% of all the wells in the continental United States are not owned by major oil companies. They're owned by independent oil companies like mine sitting right here. The other 15% of the wells are owned by the major oil companies. However, the number roughly is that the 85% of the wells owned by the smaller companies produce about 50% of the oil in the United States. The 15% of the wells owned by the major oil companies produce about 50% of the oil. So it's, you, you can see the major oil companies own the wells that are producing more oil per day per well, and the independents own the little ones. Except when they don't. We're looking at a certain area in Utah and a certain play, and I got a call right sitting at my desk here in Grand Rapids from um, Chevron, with its annual revenue of $141 billion and almost 52,000 employees, while Sid has 45 employees. The guy said, hey, we've got 80,000 acres of land in Utah. We saw you're working over there. You want to buy it? And I remember saying to them, him, no, I got 40,000 acres on my own. I don't need any more. But what do you have? You might as well ask, once you're already on the phone, well, Sid bought what Chevron had. I got what was then the largest oil discovery in the continental United States in 30 years. It's called the Covenant Field. But this epic discovery from a small oil man wasn't anything like where Sid's story starts. His family was even smaller from the world's point of view. My father was an immigrant from Dalkum Friesland in the Netherlands. He immigrated here with his entire family in 1920. World War I had occurred. It was a bitter war. Netherlands was neutral. 
But World War I was very hard on the Netherlands, and my grandfather was 56 years old after the end of the war and just decided he didn't want his kids to grow up facing that kind of uncertainty. The war ended with a truce, basically, which resulted finally in the Second World War. And my grandfather, in 1919, decided, I'm going to get out of here, and made all the arrangements and came. And they were sponsored in those days by somebody. They were sponsored by a family in Iowa with the idea that the kids are going to start to work on the farm. My dad was 20, and I couldn't speak any English. But he was not interested in farming. He was an entrepreneurial guy, had done things in the Netherlands. My grandfather had two grocery stores in Dockham, Friesland. And my father is the one who would drive with a team of horses to get the supplies for the stores. And my dad had been working in the stores since he was 11. He, he quit school at 11 and had to work in the stores. So working out on a farm didn't work for him. He decided to go to Chicago and he became a vacuum cleaner salesman. He sold vacuum cleaners to immigrants. In those days, all the immigrant groups went to their little areas. The Italians were over here, the Dutch were over there, and this and that. And so um, they all knew where they were, and he worked all of them. And this was a time, you know, when he, we take it so for granted that we all have a vacuum cleaner, but in those days, electricity was just getting popular. It was just really getting around. My dad also eventually sold washing machines because the woman without the washing machine had the scrub board and the sink and scrubbing and then it had to hang out and dry. And the washing machine could fit in the apartment. You'd hook it up, it'd work. You'd have the ringer on the side that you'd ring it out. And it just made their life easier. What is so common for us today wasn't then. And the appliances were sold by the local electric distribution company. It wasn't a Sears or anything like that. It was the electric company was trying to figure out, how do I get my product used? How do I get people using more electricity? And it was get them using vacuum cleaners and everything else. And then my dad came to Grand Rapids and must have corresponded that, hey, it's good here. Uh, mind you, they were Dutch. And Grand Rapids was very Dutch lived in the uh, YMCA here. Told me, if you ever have to live somewhere, live in the YMCA, it's nice people. And of course the YMCAs don't do that anymore, but there was a time when they were really a Christian organization that part of their mission was helping people get their feet on the ground. And then uh, he started buying his lots. And then in 1929, lost all the lots because uh, that was the um, depression. Lost it, but gradually picked him up and went into the building business. And that's my earliest memory of him. He was a builder who built small houses on lots. And then Sid said that his dad got into the oil business in Michigan. And I had to make sure I heard him right. Michigan, the mecca of apples and blueberries. I thought all the oil came from places like Texas and the Dakotas. The Albion Scipio field in Albion, Michigan, is the largest oil field east of the Mississippi in the United States of America. Now, it's all plugged out today. It's not producing any more oil, but it produced 150 million barrels of oil. And so the oil business, if you're looking for oil and living on what you find, you have to keep finding it because what you find, you produce and it's depleted and you have to find something else to produce. And so there have been about 16,000 wells, I believe, drilled in the state of Michigan. And uh, the thing about an oil well 
is that when you drill it, you have this great big drilling rig there and it makes quite a bit of noise and, and it, you're drilling this well, but it only takes two, three, four weeks to drill a well. And then what you're left with is a small little section of pipe coming out of the ground. It's called a Christmas tree, upon which sometimes you put a pumping unit which goes up and down. But it takes a very small amount of land. They're always out in the country somewhere. And, and after a year or two, the, the trees are starting to grow again and you just don't see where they are. I mean, the people in the state of Michigan or Illinois or many of the other oil states that have trees like we have here, all this deciduous forest, they don't see all the oil and gas wells that are there. Yeah, but they're there. As Sid's dad would have him find out. June of 1959, I got my driver's license and he said, you got your driver's license? I said, yep. He said, you're going to start driving to Delton, Michigan and uh, you're gonna start cleaning the oil wells and painting and doing all the work you have to do with your brother, who at that time was 14 years old. So you had a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old driving down to do work every day. That was a beautiful experience. He and I fought a lot. My mother would pack the lunch. We'd have at least a gallon of iced tea, some of which would always end up down somebody's neck or you know, if we had troubles with each other. But one of the people that worked there showed me how an oil well worked. It went up and down to pump, and on, at the very bottom of the stroke, you could feel the ball hit the seat 3,000 feet down, and, and you'd and tink, and it would come up, and then go down, tink, and fill up again, and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And I worked out in the oil field almost every summer while I was in college. I was the first person to go to higher education. My dad had a sixth grade education. I went to Calvin College, lived at home the whole time. That's how you did it then, very handy. Your mother cooked for you and did the laundry too. Cheaper and what a blessing, you don't realize it. And then I loved business from the time I was a kid. And my dad taking me out on the building sites, I, I would just talk to him about things and he was willing to talk business. I just came to realize that by using your head, you could make money. And my dad said to me, I want you to know that I've made more money since I started using my head and I quit doing the physical labor. So he actually organized it all and hired the, 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 the people to put in the foundation, the framers, and he was the general contractor. But he, he said to me, I've made more money and you will too if you figure out how to use your head and work on things. So I got out of U of M. University of Michigan. I got a master's degree of finance and accounting from U of M and that was in August of 1966 and I was born uh, when my father was 43 so that meant when I got out of college my dad was in his mid to late 60s and uh, ready to get out of business. And put young Sid then 24 years old in charge. And when we come back, more of this America Dreamer's story, more of Sid Jansma's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Put in your email, and we'll send you the five best stories of the week, and they'll be in text form so you can read them, or in audio form so you can listen to them. And that's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Sid Jansba's story. And when we left off, his father was about to put him in charge of the family oil company at the age of 24. We had two offices. Um, my dad had the one with the windows, and I had the one with the door. And he had to walk past my desk, say hi, sit over there, and every conversation he had, it was we were basically 15 feet apart. I heard him, and he heard me, and... So I started really working out in the oil field, but my dad did not explore for oil and gas. His idea was buying oil wells from the big companies when they got ready to sell them. An oil well starts out at a nice rate and then it goes down because there's only a certain amount of oil in the reservoir and when you produce it, it's gone. And when it's gone, the oil well will still produce a barrel or two a day, but it won't produce 100 barrels a day. We had a whole lot of little wells. We had about 60 little wells and that would pay you a salary. So that's what he did and it was a good business to do. And so therefore I started buying wells, but it became very competitive in those days because in the late 60s, Wall Street was starting to get the idea that we can get in the oil business by getting next to some people and, and letting them find these wells and we'll put up all the money. And so I was bidding against people that had bigger money. So I couldn't get all the stuff I wanted. And then I started thinking, I guess I'm gonna to have to find my own wells. I mean, that was it. I guess I'm gonna to have to find my own wells. And uh, how do you do it? Will you understand geology, engineering, none of which I was. So I found a geologist who would talk to me and he would give me certain ideas and then I'd work on those ideas myself. I ended up going out in the field and leasing the farmers myself. Their land for exploration. I did all of it. When I drilled my first well, about 1968 or 69, there was a dry hole. But by getting out in the field and talking, I made a connection with a landowner. His name was Gustav von Ries. He was a Swedish immigrant. And I think the connection was my dad was an immigrant, he was an immigrant, he liked the idea that I was the son of an immigrant. He had two daughters, he had no sons. I look back now and I know I was the son he didn't have. Gustav von Ries's daughter married the son of the founder of Goldman Sachs. But the bottom line is, Gus had this land his son-in-law, Arthur Alshul from Goldman Sachs, I mean, I knew Goldman Sachs, don't kid me, you know. And I mean, I knew I was up against a brick wall, basically. Arthur didn't want this dumb Swede to do a deal with this immigrant kid from Grand Rapids. And he tried his level best to uh, not have me do a deal, including Arthur had a friend in the oil business in Oklahoma by the name of Bill Clary. And Arthur said to Bill, would you go up to Michigan and interview this guy and uh, tell me if he's legit and, you know, I want to get the goods on him so that hopefully Gus will do the deal with somebody else. And he knew who he wanted to deal with, and I won't use the name. And so Bill Cleary calls me up and says, well, Sid, I'm come, I can come in next week. I'll fly in in his own plane, which I thought was cool. And so can you meet me on whatever? Of course, I could meet him whenever he came. So he flies in. I pick him up. I took him out to the land. Bill and I sat across this little dinky table in this motorhome, and Bill was a self-made man. I was a young self-made man. I didn't have anything, but I was doing it as good as I could do it. He realized that. 
And he said, all right, I'll recommend that you can run the seismic. Seismic is sending sound waves to underground rock formations and analyzing the time it takes the waves to bounce back, giving them valuable information about rock types and the possible gases or liquids in rock formations. It's similar to the use of ultrasound technology with babies in the womb, except with a lot more money on the line. But I'm not going to tell you what interest you're going to have because this has to work out with the whole family and Arthur's asked me to come here and talk to you. But I'll recommend that you should organize and get the seismic run. Well, I needed an oil and gas lease. To really own it and benefit from it. And he said, you're not going to get an oil and gas lease. That would give me the right to drill. I said, no, I'll, I'm, I'll, you run it and Gus is going to pay for it. I mean, that was a bad news deal because if I just managed it and didn't have any money in it, they'd owe me nothing. That's how it came down. So I managed the geophysics and I got the interpreter to interpret it and lo and behold, there was several things worth drilling on that land. So I get a call from Bill Cleary saying, well, we've got the geophysics back. It looks pretty interesting. And they decided that they wanted to meet me in Oklahoma City the day after Thanksgiving in 1971. And so I had to go down to Oklahoma City that morning. I was able to get a flight. I wasn't flying private, by the way. We looked at the seismic and had the geophysical interpreter in there, and we were all quite impressed. And then Bill took me in his office again, and he said, well, looks pretty good. And everybody thought, there's some real money there. I mean. I'm talking real money. I said, yeah, it does look good. He said, I, I'm going to recommend that you have a one-eighth interest in this deal. So the family was keeping seven-eighths. One-eighth. It cost me $12,500, which my dad and I just had. I mean, what I'm saying is it, it was our entire budget for exploration. He said to me, what are you going to do with it if you have one-eighth? Are you going to take in partners? I looked him in the eye and I said, if I have one-eighth of this deal, I will not take in a partner. I'll own it myself and drill the well, and if it's good, fine. If it's dry, I've paid my money. He said, okay, I, I like that. So he said, all right, we're going to have to go to Florida to ink this deal. So we go to Florida two weeks later to Gus's home on Deerfield Beach. It's called the Deerfield Mile. Gus's next-door neighbor was Mrs. Weyerhauser one of the largest owners of timberland in the world. Who he introduced me to, I met Mrs. Weyerhauser. I was 25 years old, I think, just awestruck. And Gus's friend, it was a guy by the name of Ingemar Johansson, another Swede, but he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And Gus mentioned that Ingemar had just left and I'm glad you're here, Sid. And I mean, I was just blown away. I got an oil and gas lease right there on their dining room table. And I walked out of there. I remember getting on the plane to go home and thinking, wow, I really got something. Now I didn't know if it was going to be any good. An exploration well like that would have been about a 10% success of probability. Quite a gamble. <laughs> You're literally talking about all of your money on the line. That's right. And, and But that was our business, and it was a calculated risk. We drilled it in December of 1971 and uh, in January of 72 it came in and it was a beautiful oil discovery. 
It produced 100,000 barrels a year for at least five years in a row. So, I mean, that paid my debts and my salary and a whole lot of stuff. I mean, and then I went on from there. Then came the real big time. Partnering with New York financiers, then selling his company in 2000 to the Virginia Energy Giants, Dominion Resources, and then three years later, getting that phone call from Chevron about some Utah land of theirs that they were trying to get rid of. And here's what they told Sid. We drilled a couple wells. We drilled one in 1957 and I think in 1980-something. And only a major can afford to own the same oil and gas lease for 50 years. And for me, if I own a lease, I look at it and say, I'm going to develop this lease or I'm going to get rid of it because I don't want to keep paying on it. So, no, the majors just owned it. And he said, we have some seismic on it and um, my guys don't want to drill it. The, 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 guys, the technical guys want to drill it, but the management won't let them drill it because they don't have all their ducks in a row. And when we come back, more of this terrific story, Sid Jansma's story, an American Dreamer's story, here on Our American Story. And we're back with the final portion of this fantastic American Dreamer's story on Sid Jansma Jr. And when we left off, this small oil man got a call from a big old oil company called Chevron about some Utah land of theirs that they are trying to get rid of. So I said, all right, I'll send my exploration manager down to look at what you've got. But if we do a deal, I have to have all of your technical work and all of your seismic. I need all the raw data because I need to process it myself. I need all the stuff that you've got. He said, sure, if we sell it to you, you can have that. So I called my exploration manager. His name was Doug Strickland. He went and looked at the technical data and he called me up and he said, wow. He said, these seismic lines show a beautiful underground hill that could very well have oil and gas in it. And it's a thrust play, which means the rocks that were at one time competently laying flat have now broken and one of the flat sides has slid up on the other flat side. And that's how mountains are made. And when you have this break, you create a lot of things, things happening. And one of the things you create is you create rock that's broken up that could have spaces in it where oil and gas could get. So that's what we were thinking. Okay, well, they could have that. So then the issue was, well, where would the oil and gas have come from? Which could give you a hint of how big of a find you might be looking at. In the oil business, that's called the sourcing problem. What's the source? Because it just isn't everywhere. you got to figure out where to come from. Their company had done a sourcing study, but they had never finished it. 
So we hired two professors out of the University of Utah to do a sourcing study for us, and it took us three years. And we found the Chainman Shale in Utah had a certain type of oil in it. We tested the oil, and it had a certain isotope. It's chemical makeup. In Colorado over here, there was a field called the Rangeley Field, a billion barrel field. We tested that oil. It had a certain kind of oil with the same isotope that was in the Chainman Shale over here. And then we went to the outcrop. Utah has an outcrop of a, of a sand that weeps oil. We tested that oil. It was the same isotope as these other two. So we had a situation where our prospect was in the middle of three tests that had the same oil. And the oil came from the Chainman. So the oil had to migrate from the Chainman to Rangeley, and it migrated from the Chainman over here to this outcrop, and it, this thing was right in the middle. Well, it was like, wow. So we actually showed that prospect to 65 oil companies around the United States. We had all the technical data, and I'd have my geologist and geophysicist and engineer going on the trips. And, Oh, and we, and we showed some companies looked at it twice, and one company looked at it three times. But it took us almost three years, and finally um, I got it sold. I, I sold three quarters of it, we kept a quarter. But why would you sell any of it? If there's a ton of oil there, you could get 100% of the profits from it. Why would you reduce your profit potential to 25%? This business is very risky. I mean, today, and then even, I could have afforded to drill the well on my, on my own. I said to my son, Sid, who's in business with me today, when he came on almost 25 years ago, I said to him, Sid, I've made more money owning a quarter interest in an oil well than I have 100%. Because I have drilled wells 100% because they're so good, and this one isn't going to miss. And then they do. I've been there. And so the truth is, no, you hedge your risk. Then we drilled the well. We were drilling that well, and I got a call. I got a call on about the 21st of December. He said, well, um, we've just hit some rock that's got some hardened oil in it. It's bitumen is what it's called. It's the residue of oil. Oil was once there, but is gone, and it leaves a residue, and it's called bitumen. And I was, oh, that's interesting. So just let me know how it goes on. And so that was around the 21st. And then I got, then the next day, they were still drilling that stuff. And I said, well, did you, did you take a little piece of that stuff and check the isotope? I mean, what isotope was that? Well, they got it. They got it to the engineer who was skiing somewhere, because this was Christmas holiday. Got him off the slope, get that thing to the lab and figure out. Then I got a call on December 24, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and the call was, we're not drilling any bitumen anymore, and yes, it's got the same isotope as the Chainman. We logged the well, and my engineer called me from the well site, and he almost couldn't talk. And he said, Sid, you can't believe it. This, this is a huge oil discovery. I said, oh, what do you think? He said, this well will make 5 million barrels if it makes a barrel. I said, wow. So. Um, that was a few days, that was between Christmas and New Year. And so I got my whole team together and got them out to Richfield, Utah. And I said, now bring all your maps 
because what we're going to do, if we're successful here, this is now an oil discovery, 140 miles away from anything. Every, the whole industry was shocked to find oil there. I said, if that works, there's got to be other of these things around here. Because we, on our seismic, we saw other little bumps like that. I had them sitting on December 30 in the uh, Hampton Inn in Richfield, Utah on I-15. We were throwing maps all over the place saying, well, it could be here, it could be here, it could be there. And we made rectangles of these. And I said to my land manager, I want 20 people out here the day after New Year's. I want to start leasing land here. And um, sometime during the month of January, we ended up having 20 people there. And I owned 80,000 acres when I drilled the discovery and we just kept it quiet. We didn't say anything. And over the course of the next year, we leased another 400,000 acres. Now, we didn't know how good the well was. I mean, really, the engineer said to me, but I, I've been around long enough to know. I mean, it looks good here, but how do you know how big it is? We had no idea. We had no idea. And, and, and there wasn't anything else around, so we had no idea saying that it could be big. But um, it wasn't until a year and a half later we drilled the confirmation well a mile away from the discovery and got the same pay zone there. And that's when we realized we had a huge discovery on our hands. It was a year and a half later. What was then the largest oil discovery in the continental United States in 30 years. And he named this discovery, this field, Covenant. If you're a, a follower of Jesus, the word covenant means a lot. Uh, God made a covenant with the Hebrews. God made a covenant here and there. God actually has a covenant with me to be my God. And that word, the word covenant is a beautifully freighted uh, religious word. And uh, it just means that we've got an agreement together. An oil guy who's also a God guy. A story that you've probably never heard from the media before. This society that we're living in today and for the last 75 years is the Hydrocarbon Society. Um, oil and gas has been fueling all of our transportation by and large. A lot of the energy things that we're doing, including the clothes that we're wearing, are, are oil or gas related. I mean, polyethylene and so forth, all of it. We all take so many things for granted until we really realize what we got. And we just need to understand that we're really blessed to have all this stuff that we can use. But we have a responsibility. And one of our responsibilities too is if you have a lot of money, you need to be thinking about why do you have all this money? You're not gonna take it with you. So what are you gonna do with it? I've faced that issue and I've made the decision that I wanna give my money away while I'm living rather than have you give it away for me after I'm dead. We don't have any desire to have our name on a building or whatever. And I am not knocking anybody for giving and having their name on a building. That's wonderful. It can inspire other people to give. And also it's a testimony of, well, if so-and-so likes that institution, it must be pretty good. It must be okay. And so that's okay, but that wasn't us. But what we do do is we will have a rock and on that rock there will be a statement and the statement will say God has been good to us we've experienced his goodness and we've experienced his guidance as he says um, I'll never leave you and forsake you 
Therefore, as stewards of everything we have, we are glad to support this project right here, and we'll name it, because we're helping these people and we're honoring the God who gave us the resources. And, it has, and no one have a clue. No one will have a clue that it's us at all. But what I know for sure is in 25 years, when all these people are gone, no one will know in 25 years that it's us at all. But what they will know is that somebody believed that God was real and that Jesus Christ was God's son. And for that reason, they were a steward of their things. They'll know that. And what a story. And we love telling these stories, these American dreamer stories. Family businesses that turn into bigger businesses, all the good that gets done because of that growth, all of the jobs that get created, all the wealth that gets created. And time and again, we keep hearing the same story. These people, they give that wealth away. Big businesses, mid-sized businesses, the philanthropic strain in this country is deep, generosity even deeper. Grand Rapids, by the way, is the 125th biggest market in this country, but it's the 13th most generous city. And that's really remarkable. We should dig into that. Just a story on Grand Rapids itself one day. Those are remarkable numbers. Sid Jansma's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories.